welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and tonight's episode, which I'm going to spoil entirely, as usual, stars Sidney Blackmer. Has anyone heard of Sidney Blackmer? Ring any bells? How about Virginia Gregg? Robert Emhart? Irene Tedrow? We have been very spoiled by the first three episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The actors who received billing above the episode title, Ralph Meeker, Vera Miles, John Forsyth, Warren Stevens, Cloris Leachman, Gene Barry, Darren McGavin, and Ellen Corby, were almost all either stars at the time or stars later on. This time, the only actor with his name above the title is Sidney, of whom you probably haven't heard. This doesn't mean that Sidney and the others aren't good actors, or that they aren't actors you wouldn't recognize if you saw them. This time, I'd like to get all of that out of the way, all that actor bio business, right at the start. So we can see that these four little-known actors had successful and thriving careers. Then we'll move on to the episode. So, Sidney Blackmer. Sidney Blackmer began his working career in the insurance business. He decided to go into acting when he saw a Pearl White serial being filmed. Pearl White was the queen of the serials in the silent film era. Her best-known serial was The Perils of Pauline, still known today, at least the name if not the serial, in which Sidney has an uncredited role. Sidney went to New York. He debuted on Broadway in 1917, but then he served in World War I. On his return, he went back to the stage, and he appeared in dozens of mostly little-known films as well, silent films. In 1950, he won a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Drama for his role as Doc in Come Back Little Sheba. He played Teddy Roosevelt over a dozen times over the years, but his best-remembered role is one of his last. See if you can guess what it is. Do you come from Australia? Oh, no, no. I'm from right here in New York City. I've been there, though. I've been everywhere, literally. You name a place, and I've been there. <clears throat> Go ahead. Name a place. Fairbanks, Alaska. I've been there. Been all over Alaska. Yes, Fairbanks, Juneau, Anchorage, Nome, Sitka, Seward. I spent four months there in Where are you 38. folks from? Well, well I... <laughs> I'm from Omaha. Guys from Baltimore. Omaha's a good city. Baltimore is, too. Do you travel for business? Well, business and pleasure both. I'm 79, and I've been going one place or another since I was 10. You name a place, I've been there. Ah, steak's ready. Did that sound familiar? Have you figured it out? I'll give you until the end of the podcast before I reveal what role that is. He also appears in some of the anthologies that I love to go over. He's in the early suspense TV show. He's in Tales of Tomorrow. He's in the episode of Thriller based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial. He's in an Outer Limits episode, The Hundred Days of the Dragon. And he is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Episode 17 of Season 7, The Faith of Aaron Menefee. So it's going to be quite a while until we see him again. Wikipedia says that Sidney played a major role in the strike in 1919 that led to the formation of Actors' Equity, but it doesn't explain what that role was. Sidney Blackmer died in 1973 at the age of 78. Virginia Gregg is not really well known today unless you are a fan of old-time radio. Virginia Gregg was the queen of old-time radio, a voice actress that could sound like any number of people. As IMDb puts it, she had extremely wide range, playing any female character. 
So in that capacity, she appeared in The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dragnet, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, on and on. She was Miss Wong in Have Gun Will Travel back in the days when white people played Asian people, giving us one of those uncomfortable stereotypes that are very difficult to listen to today, like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. She was Helen Asher, Richard Diamond's girlfriend on Richard Diamond, Private Detective. So here's a medley of Virginia Gregg from the radio, playing Brooksy in Let George Do It, Helen Asher in Richard Diamond, Virginia Lockhart in Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and yes, I'm going to subject you to Miss Wong from Have Gun Will Travel. Well, that's all it says, George. Just a note shoved under the door. I found it when I opened up. Dear Mr. Valentine, I'll be back around 10.30, and then we'll get the guy. There's no time or signature. Hello. What's the matter? You waited for me, didn't you? Oh, I'm Tim McGean. Is that supposed to mean something? Well, sure, I'm the guy who... Yeah, I know, I know. You wrote this note. But you didn't sign it. Boo. Oh, oh, Rick. Yeah, isn't it awful? Oh, what happened to your chin? Oh, I got it caught in the 38. Wanted to go. Want you to go? Why? Well, I thought maybe my poor little face scared you. Oh, I like your poor little must-up. Well, thanks, Sporty. How about some music? Oh, I'm too tired. Turn on the radio. All right. As, uh, as long as we're, uh, seatmates on this trip, we may as well know each other. My name's Johnny. Uh, Johnny Dollar. This, uh... How do you do, Mr. Dollar? Be, uh, kind of nice to get on down south and away from all the snow and cold, won't it? Would, would you like some champagne? I, I understand all I have to do is flag down the stewardess and she'll... Uh, how about it? No. Well, Miss Wong, what's the matter with you? Something Hey Boy said. Oh, well, for goodness sakes, what did he say? Hey Boy asked me, why is wedding ring like eternity? Eternity? Eternity. Miss Wong says she not know. Then what did he say? Hey, boy, say, because it has no beginning and no end. Hey, boy, make a fun of getting married. <laughs> no. No, he's not, Miss Wong. He's too. He say that and laugh. Why, no, that's only a riddle. And then there's this, the sort of quasi-connection to Hitchcock that I love. In 1954... One year before this episode, Virginia Gregg starred with Ben Wright on the anthology radio program Escape in an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's story, The Birds, nine years before Hitchcock's film. Snap? Uh, I'm all right, Debbie. I didn't know what... You're covered with blood. Some of it's the birds. Look on the floor. Oh, Oh, so many of them. Yeah, 50. I counted them. It's horrible. Come on, darling. I'll clean the room later when I have more stomach for it. It must have been ghastly for you. Are the children all right? Yes, I've put Jill to work making tea. Johnny's in our bed just now asleep. Not why. The birds? Well, it must be the weather. The sudden change confused them. It has to be that. And if you ever wondered why Hitchcock's The Birds ends the way it does, 
it's because in the short story and radio show, the birds essentially win. Oh, Nat! Nat, what do I do? <laughs> I don't know, Debbie. I do not know. I listened to the sound of the splintering wood. And I wondered how many million years of memory were stored in those little brains behind the stabbing beaks, the piercing eyes, now giving them this instinct to destroy mankind with all the depth precision of machines. And switched on the wireless, was dead. I reached for the cigarettes. There was only one left in the packet. I lit it. I threw the empty packet on the fire and watched it burn. According to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, Hitchcock read Daphne du Maurier's story, The Birds, in one of his own anthologies. Alfred Hitchcock presents 14 of my favorites in suspense, which came out in 1960. So I guess we can maybe assume that it became one of his favorites in suspense after he read it in his book that touted it as one of his favorites in suspense. Now, Virginia Gregg's most famous voice role is actually in a Hitchcock film. It's a role that she reprises in two subsequent sequels. I'll let you think about that one for a while and reveal what that role is at the end of this podcast. She also has an unscripted role as a file clerk in Notorious. And like many of the other actors in this series, she appears frequently all over 50s and 60s TV. In the anthology shows, she's in two episodes of The Twilight Zone, Jess Bell and The Masks. She's in three episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour and three more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is episode 12, Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid. Virginia Gregg died in 1986 at the age of 70. Irene Tedrow and Robert Emhart also have extensive bios and are actors that you know when you see them. But I don't want to get too bogged down here, so let's just say that Irene can be seen in the Twilight Zone episodes Walking Distance and The Lateness of the Hour. She's Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man 1970s TV series, and she's Grandma Shandling on It's Gary Shandling Show. She has one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode and two more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, the next one being episode 23, Back for Christmas. And Irene Tedrow died in 1995 at the age of 87. Wikipedia describes Robert M. Hart as portly. He does have a very distinctive double-chinned, moon-faced look and a very distinctive voice. If you've watched early TV, then you've seen him. He has over 250 guest appearances on television. Among them are the Twilight Zone episode Static and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode The Return of Verge Likens. He's in six total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, his next being Demortuous, episode three of season two. And Robert Emhart died in 1994 at the age of 80. That's our cast. Sidney Blackmer plays Frank Partridge. Virginia Gregg plays Mildred Partridge. 
Irene Tedrow plays Lucy, Mildred's sister, and Robert M. Hart plays Mr. Kettle, the insurance investigator. Now let's see what Hitchcock has to say about this week's episode. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and especially the gentlemen. All of you have, at one time or another, speculated on how it would be to be separated from your wife for a week or a weekend. Ah, but have you ever thought of being away from the little woman for seven years? Oh, you have. Oh, well, in that case, you will be even more interested in tonight's play called Don't Come Back Alive. It's a homey little story of intrigue, jealousy, avarice, and fraud. It will follow immediately after this illustrated lecture on the virtues of our sponsor's product. May we see the first slide, please? So here's Don't Come Back Alive. First broadcast on October 23rd, 1955. Starring Sidney Blackmer, directed by Robert Stevenson, with a teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, based on his own short story. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to note that the title, Don't Come Back Alive, appears to be a takeoff of Frank Buck's title, Bring Him Back Alive. And Frank Buck was, according to Wikipedia, an American hunter, animal collector, and author, as well as a film actor, director, and producer. Beginning in the 1910s, he made many expeditions into Asia for the purpose of hunting and collecting exotic animals, bringing over 100,000 live specimens back to the United States and elsewhere for zoos and circuses, and earning a reputation as an adventurer. His book, Bring Him Back Alive, came out in 1930, and then he made the film in which he starred in 1932. There was also a radio series of the same name none of which really has anything to do with our story. But I think anyone in 1955 that heard the title Don't Come Back Alive would take it as a riff off of Frank Buck's Bring Him Back Alive. Director Robert Stevenson is not director Robert Stevens, who directed Premonition. He was an English director best known in the 30s for directing King Solomon's Mines. He was brought over to Hollywood by David Selznick along with Alfred Hitchcock. In 1956, Stevenson signed with Disney, and he made 19 films for Disney in 20 years. Among them, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, The Love Bug, and Mary Poppins. His last feature was The Shaggy D.A. Wikipedia says he is the most commercially successful director in the history of film. He was nominated for Best Director in the Academy Awards for Mary Poppins. He directs seven total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and his next one is episode nine, The Long Shot. And just to add one of those little cross-pollinations that I enjoy with Hitchcock, he was married from 1933 to 1944 to actress Anna Lee, and she appears in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, Last Seen Wearing Blue Jeans. Robert Stevenson died in 1986 at the age of 81. So let's get to the show begins with a shot of a car pulling up to a house in a nice little suburban neighborhood. Frank Partridge gets out of the car, and he gets out by sliding over to the passenger seat and getting out of the passenger door so he can get right out onto the sidewalk. Now, why did people do this in 1950s TV shows? 
You can see people doing this in just about any episode of Perry Mason. I can't imagine that people really did this. And the only reason I can think of that they did it in the TV shows was to show off that they didn't have bucket seats. Anyway, that's what he does. He gets out on the sidewalk. He goes up to the house. He comes in the door. And there's a nice little bit of flirtation with his wife that shows that they are sincerely very much in love. And Frank has good news for his wife, Mildred. But there is a serpent in this paradise, and it is money. Frank, you got a job. Why didn't you tell me right away? I wanted to surprise you. I am a salesman, madam. Salary plus commissions. That's good. Isn't it? No limit to what I can earn. What's the matter? I don't get the job until next month, Mildred. Oh, Frank. Yes, I know. We need it now. Bills, insurance, payments, back rent. We'll have to struggle through it somehow. Mr. Willard called today. If we don't have the rent by Monday, he's going to evict us. Well, we can't say we weren't expecting it. That's the trouble. If you don't own your own home, how many times have I said it? If we just owned our own home... We will someday, darling. You just watch. Of course, it won't be next year, but now that you'll be working... I know, but suppose the bottom falls out of this job the way they did out of the last one. Frank, that last job lasted over four years. Nothing lasts forever. But you don't understand, dear. Even if it does last a few years, say six or seven, I'd be 60 then. And 60-year-old men just don't get jobs. That's what scares me, Mildred. Too old to be employed. Too young for old age pension. Eat your salad, dear. We'll get along. We always have. Yeah, on what? On what I'll save in the next 10 years? Well, there's always our insurance policies. If we can keep up the payments on those. Oh, sure. We'd have two or three hundred dollars. It's not an endowment, you know. One of us has to die. I've been thinking that wouldn't be a bad idea. Frank, don't talk like that. Now, I know it's discouraging, but we'll work it out. I love you. You're worth a lot more to me than $25,000, and you remember it. All right, honey. I promise not to do myself in. What I really had in mind was to spike your wine with a little arsenic. Well, that's an entirely different matter. But wouldn't it be safer if I just fell down a well and was never heard of again? That way you could report the matter to the insurance company, collect the money, and have a wonderful time. No one has to die. No one has to die. Not actually. If the insurance company believed that either of us were dead, we'd get the $25,000. do not you see? If you were to, to disappear, just vanish completely, and I reported you dead, it would be the same thing. It wouldn't at all. If it were as simple as that, all the dishonest people in the country would be doing it. It's stealing. But think of what it would mean to us. It would mean security. No more worrying about bills and that little place in the country we've been thinking about for so long. It'd be wonderful, but you can't fool an insurance company like that. They'd have to have proof. They wouldn't just take your word for it. Sure, they'd demand a body. But, but you know, after a certain length of time, a missing person is considered dead. You know, you hear about courts declaring people legally dead. Frank? Frank? How long would I have to be? Seven years. Oh. But of course, that's just when we'd need it most. I'd be more than 60 then. 
We wouldn't have to worry, not for a minute. We'd get a nice, quiet little place in the country. Just relax and enjoy life. But seven years, Frank. No, honey, but we could meet occasionally after it all blows over. You know, we could have dates secretly, and I could court you all over again. We'd never get away with it, would we? Of course, you'd have to have to move, rent an apartment under another name. In Los Angeles, for instance, uh, change your appearance a little. If I had a new dress. And wore glasses. I really do need glasses, Frank. And maybe dyed my hair. Oh, you'd look ten years younger. No one would recognize you. Yes, I have let myself go. And maybe get a job again. It would help out on the insurance payments. We'd have to keep those up, wouldn't we? Yes, it won't be easy, Mildred. Seven years, that's an awfully long time. It's just as long for you. I could stand it as long as we could keep seeing each other. In secret, I mean. And wouldn't really be stealing, would it? If we kept up the payments, really would be our money, wouldn't it? I don't care about that. What can they prove? As long as we do it right, the scheme is foolproof. Come on, we'll drink a toast. To the next seven years. The next seven years. Can I start by saying that that entire scenario is completely ridiculous? We start out with them talking about how they need money. All these bills are piling up. They're going to be evicted from their home unless they pay rent right away. And what do they come up with? They come up with a scheme where they'll get money in seven years. So how is that going to do them any good now? Well, it doesn't matter because that whole aspect of the story is completely forgotten. There's no landlord banging on the door at any time. It turns out it's no problem. In which case, why do they need to do the scheme? So there's that. What the conversation does show is what ends up becoming clearer and clearer as the episode goes on. And that is that Frank is very much into the idea of getting the money, and Mildred is very much into the idea of the romance of it all. Virginia Gregg does a wonderful job all the way through this episode. But she has one moment in this scene where she says, we'd never get away with it. Would we? And there's a look on her face which just shows that she's charmed by the romance of the whole thing. And because she's charmed by the romance of the whole thing, she's able to justify it by saying, well, it's not really stealing we're paying. Frank, on the other hand, is very hard-headed. He doesn't get into the romance of it. He essentially says, well, the heck with them. We can get away with this. So Mildred is going to have to go away for seven years. Crazy, right? Well, it's a show. And the reason she has to go away for seven years is because you need seven years to be declared legally dead. That's what you always hear anyway. But is that correct? This is from the Straight Dope website responding to the question, what happens when someone legally dead shows up alive? Within the body, the answer is the following. Edgar Centel, a retired senior vice president and general counsel of Southern Farm Bureau Life Insurance Company, explains that the presumption of death after the unexplained absence of seven years developed after 1800. Before that, if there was no evidence to the contrary, an absent person was presumed to be living, even though he might have been 90 or 100 years old at the time a question arose. Today, an absent person is presumed to have died if, one, he has been missing from his home or usual residence for a period of seven years, two, such absence has been continuous and without explanation, three, persons most likely to hear from him have heard nothing, and four, he cannot be located by diligent search and inquiry. According to Centel, almost all the states recognize the presumption, either by statute or judicial recognition, of the common law rule. 
Some states have amended their statutes to lower the seven-year period to five consecutive years, and a few have reduced the period even more. Minnesota and Georgia cut theirs to four. Here's how it works. If you disappear, those interested can file a petition to have you declared dead. They'll have to prove the things I just mentioned. If they do, your estate will be distributed as if you were deceased. Now, the concept of no body leading to someone being declared legally dead appears often enough so that it gets its own page on tvtropes.org. But it mainly breaks down into two types of stories. One of them is when a missing person who has usually been lost at sea returns to their lives at the most inopportune time. Usually that person's been on a desert island for a while. Sometimes they perfect a great skill on the island, as in the current TV series Arrow, which is actually based on the Green Arrow comic stories of DC Comics, which had an origin story of Green Arrow on a desert island in Adventure Comics number 256, cover dated January 1959. You also have the wife that turns up, having been on a desert island, after her husband has had her declared dead so he can remarry. The prototype of this story is the 1940 film My Favorite Wife, starring Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, in which Irene Dunn, as the wife, returns after Cary Grant has remarried and poses as his sister, I believe, while Cary Grant tries to figure out a way to get out of his dilemma. Timmy's just like you. Obstinate. Jealous. But adorable. Mm-hmm. I feel sorry for the woman who marries him. Why? Because he's a heartbreaker, like you. Go on. I'm one of the most faithful husbands that ever lived. Mm. With a wife in every room. Mm-hmm. Nick, I'm waiting. Are you going to tell her? Sure. Well, when? Right now. Because you're going to... Take tact and delicacy. Mm-hmm. She's waiting. Well, right, here we go. George Cukor tried to remake the film in 1962 as Something's Got to Give with Marilyn Monroe and Dean Martin. All you can think about is the way I behaved with a poor little man who wouldn't harm a fly. Why don't you think about uh, telling her that your wife's back? No, that wouldn't occur to you, would it? I was going to tell. I was going to... I mean, how long does it take a man to tell a woman that his wife's back? That his wife's back? It takes two seconds. I just did it in two seconds. You've had two days. Sadly, Marilyn died during the making of the movie so it was abandoned, only to return the next year as Move Over Darling, starring Doris Day and James Garner. Ellen, would you you just wait a minute? To the airport driver, please hurry. Ellen, darling, just give me a little bit of time. How much time do you need to say my wife is alive? Four little words, go practice them. Driver, hurry. The Cary Grant film is worth seeing. The Doris Day film is not. There's an interesting 35-minute-long reconstruction of Something's Got to Give on YouTube that is actually pretty enjoyable, if you want to check that out. The other type of story is when an actual murder takes place. Now, people have been hiding bodies in fiction for a long time. A 
all the way back to Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart and before. But the whole notion of getting insurance money is a more recent phenomenon, I think. Now, the whole idea of staging a murder as an accident in order to get insurance money appears in James M. Cain's Double Indemnity, for example. Actually, hiding a body for seven years is a little trickier, and I'm not sure how many stories in which that appears. But it does seem like it shows up in a lot of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents type programs. But the gimmick of this particular episode is that Frank doesn't kill Mildred, and they're both in on the scheme, as opposed to something like Gone Girl. The problem is, the insurance investigator does think he's killed her. But I'm jumping ahead in the story. So time passes after they make the decision to actually go through with this scheme. Frank has rented an apartment in Los Angeles for Mildred. He's put it under a fake name, Mary Pearson, so that she has the same initials that she has now, Mildred Partridge. Now the day they're going to go through with this scheme, Mildred is supposed to be going over to her sister's house. And her sister Lucy always comes to pick her up. You'd think they would have thought a little harder about this. I mean, here they are, beginning a scheme that will last for seven years, and they can't plan well enough ahead to call Lucy the day before or the day before that to tell her that Mildred will be taking a bus instead of having to be picked up. But instead, they call sort of at the last minute. And they call so late that they get Lucy's husband, who tells Frank that Lucy is already gone to do errands herself and will arrive at their house at 6.30 to pick Mildred up. No cell phones, of course, so that they can call her directly. Frank, who has done a bad job of planning, gets annoyed at this. Lucy went into town at noon, is coming straight here to pick you up at 6.30. We can't do it now, Frank. You like that woman. You never can depend on her, always upsetting our plans. We'll just have to put it off till next week. No, if we put it off now, we'll never do it. Come on, honey. If we hurry, we can still make it, and we have to make it. All right, Frank. So Frank is mad at Lucy for being reliable. She's going to show up, as she always does, to pick Mildred up. And upsetting their plans, of which Lucy knows nothing. And their illegal plans anyway. So you can see right from the start that the whole scheme is ill-conceived and rushed and should be canceled. The excuse of, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it, is a pretty bad excuse. And maybe they shouldn't ever do it. So off they go. Frank drives Mildred to Los Angeles, to the apartment building. Now, we never really find out exactly where Frank and Mildred live, so we don't really know how far away that is. But it appears, what with Lucy coming at 6.30, that they're now pressed for time. When will I see you, Frank? I'll work it out. I'll write you in a couple of days. Come on, dear, come on. I won't be back in time. All right, Frank. Frank gives her a little peck on the cheek, but she gives him a big hug, and we once again can see the difference between the two. How Mildred is very broken up over this idea of separating for this time, but Frank is all concerned about the hard-headed details at this point being caught by Lucy. And he's got reason to be worried if they're going to go through with this plan, because it's dark by the time he gets home, and Lucy is just coming up to the door. She rings the bell as Frank is sneaking around to the back. He falls in the dirt of a path between bushes. His hat falls off. He doesn't pick it up. And he rushes around inside. Lucy's been ringing the bell and ringing the bell. He answers the door, claims he's been sleeping. But it sure doesn't look like he's been sleeping. 
This is a nice little suspenseful scene, actually, with Frank racing in, trying to salvage the plan. So Frank explains that Mildred took the bus, and Lucy is not happy. She says, why didn't you call earlier, save me a trip? And it's a good point. Now, if Frank had any sense at all, he'd drive right back to Los Angeles, grab Mildred, and say, it's all off, I screwed it up. But no. Instead, two days pass. Presumably, the police are called in at some point, but we never see them. Instead, we see Frank now with Mr. Kettle, who is the insurance investigator. Now, how is it you didn't drive your wife yourself? Well, she wouldn't hear of it. I'd been working around the house all day, and she knew that I was tired out. Very thoughtful of her. I believe you told the police that you took a nap after she left? Yes, as a matter of fact, Lucy had to ring several times before she could wake me. And she says it was more than five minutes. Well, being asleep, naturally, I wouldn't know about that. Your sister-in-law says that you had dirt stains on your clothes. Well, don't you believe everything that Lucy says? She's never liked me. But there were dirt stains. I'd been working in the garden. I wanted to get some fresh air to clear my head. I'm a little muddled, Mr. Partridge. Uh, I thought you were sleeping. Well, I was. Th this was earlier, you see. Well, before I had the nap. Your clothes were dirty, you were perspiring, out of breath, agitated. That doesn't sound much to me like a man who had just awakened from a nap. Your wife has mysteriously disappeared, and you have a $25,000 life insurance policy. You know, Mr. Partridge, to me, that comes out murder. Murder? I didn't kill my wife. I loved her. And I haven't tried to claim the $25,000. You will. But you'll have to produce the body to prove she's dead. How in the world can I produce a body? We'll help you. We'll give you all the help we can, Mr. Partridge. Good day. So convinced that Frank murdered Mildred, the first thing Kettle does is have the rose bushes dug up, but he doesn't find a body. Seems I underestimated you. I was positive we would have found it by now. But we will find it, because we have time on our side. It requires seven years to presume death. And if necessary, we'll keep searching the whole seven years. Better answer it, Partridge. Hello? Frank, I had to call. I couldn't stand it any longer. Yes, I know. I've been very busy. You see, my, my wife disappeared a week ago. I, I can't talk to you now. But I've got to see you. You haven't written me about anything that's happening. Will you try to meet me somewhere this week? Yes, of course. Do you promise? Yes, I promise. Sounded like a woman's voice. It was a friend of ours. Don't you mean yours? $25,000. Another one. It all fits a very familiar picture. Well, as I said, it's just a matter of time.
So it's a clever scenario. Two people stage the disappearance of one of them. The investigator thinks it's murder. He can't find a body, but he's going to keep looking. And to make matters worse, he overhears Mildred on the phone and thinks it's a girlfriend. It never occurs to anybody that there's any sort of faking going on here to get the $25,000 by disappearing intentionally. That might be because it's a completely ridiculous scheme. Anyway, Frank and Mildred do meet. They meet at the library. Now, there is one other actor who gets credit at the end of this program, and we don't even get to see her face. She's the librarian. Why mention her? Because, as we've seen over the first four episodes, there's a troupe of actors that appear multiple times in the series. The librarian is played by Edna Holland, and she'll return in episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. Here's part of her bio from Rotten Tomatoes. Enjoying a stage, screen, and television career that lasted almost seven decades, former child actress Edna Holland appeared on stage under the management of the legendary David Belasco, just like Mary Pickford, whom Holland followed into films in 1915. Cast as the other woman, Holland menaced Pickford's rival Mary Miles Minter in Always in the Way and was equally intolerant of Hazel Dawn in The Feud Girl, Marjorie Rambeau in Mary Moreland, and Ruth Stonehouse in The Masked Rider. By 1920, she was billing herself the rather formidable Mrs. E.M. Holland and returned to the stage. Surprisingly, Holland was back in films by the late 30s, now mostly playing professional women such as teachers, nurses, or secretaries. Making her television debut on the Lone Ranger program in 1949, Holland went on to appear on such popular shows as Lassie, Annie Oakley, and The Andy Griffith Show. She retired after a bit part in Inside Daisy Clover, 1965, and died from a ruptured aneurysm in 1982 at the age of 86. What isn't mentioned in there is that she has an uncredited role, Mrs. Joyce, in Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. So at the library, Frank and Mildred talk through the stacks, each on the other side of the shelf, looking over the books, which is a nice touch. Frank tells Mildred he won't be able to see her for a while since the police and the insurance are all over him. He tells her she should move farther away, to San Francisco. She grimaces when he says this, but he promises that they'll spend Christmas together. They hold hands over the books briefly, and Frank leaves first, again demonstrating Mildred's love of Frank and of romance, and Frank's hard-headedness, and in many ways disregard of Mildred. Now, remember Edgar Santel's list of four things you need before a missing person can be presumed dead, particularly number four, which was, he cannot be located by diligent search or inquiry. Is anyone doing that here? For all the talk about the police and the insurance being all over him, no one has followed Frank to the library. No one has traced Frank's movements on the day that Mildred disappeared so that they could find that maybe he drove to Los Angeles to a particular apartment. No one seems to be looking for Mildred at all. She's not living that far away, and she's even using the same initials. Kettle seems so obsessed with the idea that Frank has murdered Mildred that I can sort of imagine him not following these lines. But where are the police in all this? All right, it soon becomes December 24th. Frank calls Mildred, tells her he's coming up for Christmas, that he has a present for her. 
This again seems sort of last minute to me. I mean, he has told her earlier that he's going to be spending Christmas with her, but he waits until the day before to actually call her and say this is happening for sure. She's very happy to hear that he's coming. She tells him she has a present for him too. But before he tells her that he's coming to see her, she says, you mean I can come back now? Which is all she really wants to do at this point. No. She can't come back. They agree to meet at Velarde's, a restaurant on Fisherman's Wharf. And Mildred is so overcome by joy and excitement that she tells Frank that she's going to cry. So Frank ventures out the next day on Christmas to his car with a wrapped present in his hand. And Mr. Kettle shows up. Thought I'd better drop in on you again. Wouldn't want you to think I'm neglecting you. Haven't you got anything better to do than to keep hounding me? Why, I haven't bothered you for a couple of months. Today I got to thinking, this is Christmas, and I'll bet Mr. Partridge is getting sentimental. Seems I was right, eh? For the lady friend, eh? I've told you a thousand times I haven't got a lady friend. I love my wife. But your wife has been dead for five months. And here you are with a Christmas present. Perfume? Now, you wouldn't be giving perfume to anyone but a lady, would you? This is for my wife's sister, Lucy. Well, that's certainly very forgiving of you, considering she practically accuses you of killing her sister. I'm doing this for Mildred's sake. She would want it that way. I'll ride over with you. You don't mind, do you? It isn't as if you were calling on a lady friend, is it? We don't get to see the scene where Frank shows up at Lucy's house with a wrapped bottle of perfume. Instead, we switch to Filardi's restaurant. There's a nice shot through the window from outside into the restaurant. Mildred is sitting center stage at a table. There's a waiter standing behind. There's no one else in the restaurant. There's a Christmas carol playing. It's one of the few bits of music in the episode. It came upon a midnight clear. The camera slowly moves in through the glass of the restaurant towards Mildred. And this is in many ways the most important scene in the entire episode because this is the turning point. You can see it in her eyes and on her face. She signals to the waiter who steps up and she says, I guess my friend isn't coming. That represents her entire relationship with Frank at this point. Her friend isn't coming. The romance is gone. Virginia Gregg does a great job of conveying this. And from this point on, though we don't see it, I think we can assume that Mildred has written Frank off and is starting a new life of her own. So years pass. It is now 1954. It was 1948 to start. Frank is lining up the premium notices for each year, his receipts. And who comes to knock on the door? Mr. Kettle again. Remember me, Mr. Partridge? Why, of course I do. It's been quite a while. Here, I brought your mail in for you. Nothing very exciting there. No love letters, anyway. There's nobody to write them. Now, you really fooled me. I was sure there was another woman. You fooled yourself, Mr. Kettle. I told you that six years ago. Maybe now you'll believe me. About another woman? Yes. You killed your wife, all right, Mr. Partridge. Well, to this day, I'll be darned if I know what you did with the body. If you want to read your mail, go ahead. It's just bills and advertisements. And the number of times I went down to the morgue, I figured it was just a question of time before somebody would find the body. You told me that last year, and the year before, and the year before that. What are you going to do with the 25000 Oh, you don't have it yet, and I don't think you ever will. But what are your plans? I'm going away, so far away that I won't ever have to see you again. Oh, come now. There's nothing personal in this. I don't take any moral stand. Maybe you had a good reason for killing her. 
And I've told you over and over I did not kill my wife. You've been persecuting me for years. I've had about all of this that I am going to take. Now, you get out of my house. Get out. That's a bad temper you got. Is that how it happened six years ago? I'm warning you. Well, I think you're about ready to crack. You got another whole year to go. And I don't think you're going to make it. That moment there where Frank gets angry at Kettle, he picks up a candlestick on the mantle and he pounds it. This is what is known as a plot point. Now, after Kettle leaves, Frank checks his mail, and there is something other than bills and advertisements. There's a letter from Mildred, which he reads, and she talks about having taken a vacation to Lake Tahoe, and she's clearly developed a life of her own. And the letter is all rather formal and unaffectionate. So now it's 1955, one more premium notice lined up amongst Frank's insurance premium notices, and someone comes to the door, but it's not Mr. Kettle, it's Mildred. Mildred, what on earth are you doing here? I had to see you. But it's dangerous. You shouldn't have come. I was careful. No one saw me. Only a couple of days to go. So this is what it's like after seven years. That's strange. I'd always thought of it as being larger. I guess I'm not much of a housekeeper. Oh, Mildred, you look wonderful. I suppose one's bound to change in seven years. I'm sorry I was irritable, honey, but you gave me a start. I can't tell you how good it is to have you back. I'm not back. The time is almost up, dear. I was just writing you a letter. In two more days, I go into court. It's no good. I want to drop the whole scheme. I want a divorce. A divorce? You want a divorce? I'm sorry, Frank. It just hasn't worked out, our being apart all these years. Nothing's the same. I've made a new life. New interests, new values. And a new love. But we love each other. We always have. Nothing has changed. I'm afraid it has. We've both changed in different ways. I want to get married again, and I don't intend to be a bigamist. What about our plan? What about the $25,000? Well, that's out, of course. But I've been able to save a little money, about $1,500. I'd like for you to have it. $1,500. I'll come back to life, claim amnesia, and we'll get a divorce. Are you listening, Frank? Yes, I'm listening, but it doesn't make sense. I've waited and sacrificed for seven long years for that $25,000. Now you want to pay me off with $1,500. It's the best I can do. I don't know you. You're not Mildred. You're a stranger coming in here in the middle of the night to steal my money, my $25,000. But you're not going to do it. You're not going to have my money. You are dead. You've been dead for seven long years. Don't you understand? You are dead. <laughs> You've been dead too long. Come back now. So finally, some music in the episode besides A Christmas Carol, and it's overly dramatic music for when Frank actually murders Mildred with the candlestick that he previously pounded on the mantle when he talked to Mr. Kettle. You can tell from the audio of that scene how Mildred's voice has changed. There's also these moments in that scene where she stiffens up when he touches her. So we thought the gimmick was that Frank doesn't kill Mildred. And then it turns out that the gimmick is, after seven years, he does kill Mildred. Now, Jacqueline Pye, the pie lady, says, You think that that's the twist, but there's one more twist. Frank digs a grave in the rose garden and buries Mildred there. The next day, 
he heads out to his car, just as he did on Christmas Day a number of years before. It's the day he's going to get Mildred declared legally dead, and he's going to get his $25,000. And Mr. Kettle shows up. Well, Partridge, big day, eh? Off to court. Get off my property. Let's not have any hard feelings. You beat me. You bet I beat you every step of the way for seven long years. You were so smug, so eternally sure of yourself. Well, what have you got to show for it? Rub it in, Partridge. You're entitled to it. Been doing some work in the garden? Well, I was just doing a little spading. I'm putting in some flora bunda. I haven't got very far with it. My back's been bothering me. Tell you what, just to show you there's no hard feeling, while you're gone, I'll spade it up for you. No, don't bother. Oh, that's all right. I'll enjoy it. Good exercise. I'll have it finished by the time you get back from court. More music to close out the episode as the camera moves in on Frank's face. We never do see the moment where Mildred's body is discovered. We don't need to see it, but Mr. Kettle is going to be surprised to find such a fresh corpse. All we need is the close-up on Frank's face to see that he realizes that he's not only a murderer at last, but a captured murderer. The author of this teleplay was Robert C. Dennis. Here is his entry in the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock by Thomas Letch. Canadian-born screenwriter who began in radio and then wrote some 500 television scripts, including Dip in the Pool, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode he co-wrote with Francis Cockrell, and a dozen others for the series. He created the television programs The New Adventures of China Smith and Passport to Danger and wrote two mystery novels, The Sweat of Fear and Conversations with a Corpse. Actually, Robert C. Dennis wrote more than a dozen others. Here's what Jack Seabrook says about him in the Bare Bones E-Zine at barebonesez.blogspot.com. Robert C. Dennis was born in 1920 in Ontario, Canada, and came to the U.S. in 1936. He began selling stories to the pulps in the late 1930s and continued until the early 1950s, selling over 150 stories to magazines. He wrote more than 40 radio plays, and in the early 1950s, when other pulp writers were turning to slicks, digests, or paperbacks, Dennis began writing for television. This became the main focus of his career, and he is credited with over 500 teleplays from 1950 to 1983. He wrote a handful of movie scripts, but episodic TV was his bread and butter. He is said to have invented the teaser, the short scene at the start of a TV show, that captures the viewer's attention and ensures he or she will not change the channel during the first commercial break. He was a founding member of the Los Angeles chapter of the Mystery Writers of America, and he died in 1983. Now, Robert C. Dennis actually wrote 30 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and his next one is coming right up, episode number eight, Our Cook's a Treasure. But of the 30 that Robert Dennis wrote, only two of them were based on his own short stories. Place of Shadows episode number 22, and this one, which was originally published in the November 1945 issue of Detective Tales. Other stories in that issue of Detective Tales were With Blood in His Eye, Laugh, Corpse, Laugh, That Kill Crazy Cadaver, which gives you an idea. 
I do not have a copy of that issue of Detective Tales, but I do have a copy of Best Detective Stories of the Year 1946, which includes Don't Come Back Alive. Editor David C. Cook prefaces the story with this blurb. This unique little tale plants the seed where James Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity plowed the ground in the insurance racket. Many detective story characters go to great pains to dispose of the corpse after the murder, but this is a new twist on the old formula. Frank Partridge cleverly stows the body out of sight and out of mind many years before the critical moment. Robert C. Dennis, as far as can be determined, has not strayed from the sure income of the pulps, but judging from performances, he has been sadly overlooked by better markets. Now, the story takes place initially in 1938. It's a first-person narration, the first person being Frank Partridge, and it begins with Frank and Mildred worrying about the Depression and a possible oncoming war. And Frank says, Listen, the last war took four and a half years. This one will take the same time, perhaps five years. No nation is capable of continuing a modern war longer than five years. I was parodying the analyses of the radio commentators, but these were my own convictions, too. Five years. That will be 1943. Allow two years more prosperity due to war momentum. That's 1945. Then what? I don't know, Mildred admitted. Another depression, the worst in history. So Frank believes that seven years from the time that they're speaking, there'll be another major depression. And they have the following conversation about their insurance. If we could just collect the whole 10000 then we'd be fixed for the rest of our lives. She smiled a little. Do you want to kill me, or shall I die a quick natural death? I want you to note that. She said it as a joke. It was a joke. In her mind, she knew I was incapable of killing her. Speaking very slowly, I said, No one has to die. Not actually. If the insurance company thought you were dead, we could collect then, couldn't we? But that's impossible. How could they think I was dead when I wasn't? A doctor would soon know I was alive. She tossed her head impatiently. Come and get your dinner. But hungry as I was, I couldn't eat. There are two ways, I said suddenly, laying down my fork. First, if someone died and the insurance company thought it was you, they would have to pay off. Of course, that's not possible. But the second way, Mildred was intent now. What is it? If you just disappeared and were never found, I could say you must be dead. And in a certain length of time, the courts would declare you legally dead. Then we would collect the 10000 How long? Mildred whispered. Seven years, I said. That same seven years which would give us less than a third of the amount. Her breath came out in a long, soft sigh. Why, it would be 1945. Exactly. Two years after the war. Right in the middle of the Depression. When others are homeless and starving, we would have $10,000. I was excited now. Think of it, Millie. $10,000. We could settle down in some other place where no one knew us. A small town, maybe. Or buy a farm. And live comfortably for the rest of our lives. Think of it. So that's how it begins in the story. And you'll note that Frank is narrating from the position of being at the end of the story. And he's trying to sway you to his point of view. So he says things like, she said it as a joke. In her mind, she knew I was incapable of killing her. It's an interesting difference from what we see in the episode, where they're simply just hard up for cash. In this case, they're worrying about the future, and they're trying to plan for the future. Now, from that point, the story jumps ahead, past the whole event itself. There's none of the suspense that you have in the episode where Frank is late getting back to the house. Instead, you go right to the investigator, who is not an insurance investigator in the story, but a police detective. 
Once again, the detective's name is Kettle. Frank notes that he thought that it was a ludicrous name. He was a big, fat man, and I thought, Kettle, he looks more like a pot. I chuckled a little, and he noticed me. So I'm sure he marked me down then and there as a cold-blooded criminal. Now, ordinarily, I don't think I'd bother much with possible significance of names. But since Dennis himself brings it up with Kettle, it makes me wonder if there's any significance to Frank's name being Partridge. He's being hunted by Kettle, perhaps to be bagged and put in a pot. There is a Christmas scene in the episode, though there isn't a partridge in a pear tree. Though I suppose you could say at the end, with Mildred buried, there's a partridge in a rose bush. And what about the name Frank, the man who in the story is trying so hard to demonstrate his honesty? Maybe I've gone too far with all of this, but Dennis started it. One of the first things Mr. Kettle does, as in the episode, is have the garden dug up. And Frank says, it required a day and a half with Kettle standing around smiling and winking at me every time I went out. He treated me as if I were a friendly opponent in some guessing game. He left the human element out of it to the extent of not having any gruesome thoughts. It was a game with him, nothing more, but one he was determined to win. It was really amusing to watch his assurance fade. When he finally abandoned the garden, he was so crestfallen, I felt almost a little sorry for him, in the same manner that he would have felt toward me if I'd lost. But he didn't remain dejected long. The vegetable cellar was his next guess. He was down in that damp, dark place nearly a week. I began to enjoy our little game. For while I had $10,000 at stake, my life was not in danger. In other words, I was experiencing all the thrills of the chase, of the hunted man trying to outwit his pursuers, and with no violent end awaiting me if I failed. So you'll note that he begins by pinning the game on Kettle, saying it was a game with him. But he quickly assumes the game himself, so that he enjoys defeating Kettle at every turn. In the second year, Partridge says, I was missing Mildred. We saw each other, of course, but surreptitiously and at infrequent intervals, because Kettle was still around. But most of all, I missed Mildred's care. I was never intended to live alone. I am a poor cook and an abominable housekeeper. I began to look extremely seedy, but I kept my mind fixed on that $10,000 that awaited us. During that first year, a number of bodies were discovered, as they are in every large city every year. Each time I was called in to see if it was Mildred. There was the temptation, naturally, to say, yes, that is she, and get it over with so I could collect the money then and there. But I didn't give in. There was something about such a device that smacked too much of actual murder, and I was not a criminal. I couldn't bring myself to do it. So as the years go by, it's not just Mildred who prospers, it's Frank. They both get well-paying jobs. They really could abandon the whole scheme, but they don't. And Kettle retires from the police force and buys a small house in the same block as Frank's house. So even though he's not officially investigating anymore, he's closer than ever, and Frank can't shake him. Finally, we get to the ending that we have in the episode. Only Mildred doesn't come back the day before. She comes back nine months before. She was extremely well-dressed and looked lovely and desirable, and almost immediately I lost my irritation and went to her. I put my arms around her, but she moved away. She said directly, Frank, I want a divorce. I was dumbfounded. I was stupefied. I didn't know her. She was a stranger. We've been apart too long, she went on, speaking with a crisp poise that was utterly new to me. I have no feeling towards you now. I've made a new life. I have new friends. I have a new love. But our plan, I protested, only nine months. No, she said, 
I have to appear sometime, so even if they gave you the money, you'd have to return it when I reappeared. But don't come back, I said eagerly, for now I knew I had no feeling toward her either. I simply did not know her. She wasn't my wife. Let me collect the money. Stay in your new life. But I want to get married again, she told me. That's all right, I cried. I'll stay away. I won't interfere. Just give me the chance to get the money. You mean marry again without a divorce, she exclaimed. Why, that's bigamy. I want to call your attention to that remark. She objected to breaking the law. That, it seems to me, is conclusive proof that she did not have a criminal mind either. And now we come to the crux of the story and the episode. It's spilled right out in the story. As Frank says, In the new life which she had created, the money had played no part, had no importance. But I had lived only for the money. I had built my life around it. It was everything to me. And so he kills her, as he does in the episode. I knew where I would put the body, the one safe place, where Kettle or the insurance men would never think to look. Tomorrow I will go to court to have Mildred legally declared dead. The seven years are up. Now I will force the insurance company to pay me my $10,000. I have only one worry, one haunting fear, and that is Kettle. He is always around, always watching me. I don't quite know what I should do about him. I could kill him, but I shrink even from the thought. I am not a criminal. I can't even think as one. I have only the fear that goes with being a criminal. And today, Kettle gave me a horrible start. He was staring thoughtfully at my vegetable garden, almost, it seemed, at the very spot where I had buried Mildred, and then spoke speculatively. You know, he said, I wonder if we shouldn't have dug deeper that first time. Yes, sir, Partridge, I think we should have dug deeper. And that's where the story ends. As Jack Seabrook in Bare Bones Easing notes, the end of the story is ambiguous. Does Kettle really plan to dig up the garden, or is he just waxing nostalgic about an old unsolved case? The question is answered in the television adaptation, and it certainly is. So which is better, the story or the episode? The story has its points. It eliminates that annoying thread of needing money immediately, but it loses a lot of the suspense. We can forgive the ridiculous lapse of not calling Lucy earlier because it provides such wonderful tense moments in the episode. It's interesting to have Frank narrate and consistently deny that he's a criminal when clearly from the point that he's speaking, he has murdered his wife. And the ambiguous ending is kind of cool, but you can't beat that moment at the end of the episode when Kettle starts digging and the camera zooms in on Frank's face. So if I had to make a choice... I would go with the episode. Now the next question is, how well in both story and episode does Robert Dennis sell it? The whole thing is ridiculous after all. We've acknowledged that. But I would say he sells it well enough in both. I'm willing to buy it for the purposes of the story and the twist at the end. Now Jacqueline Pye, the pie lady, at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com says this about the episode. Blackmer's performance is serviceable, but not fantastic. We don't really care about Frank. We do care about Mildred. Virginia Gregg is a very good reactor. Mildred isn't very bright, but she's likable and sweet. We feel rather sorry for her, being all alone. And I can't say I wasn't on her side the entire time. When she shows up demanding a divorce, she had my full support, even though this is Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and she wasn't going to survive after making such a demand. 
Sidney Blackmer does have this bombastic way about him that feels like acting from another time. But that doesn't mean he's bad or serviceable, as the pie lady says. I don't think it's his performance that turns us against Frank. I think it's that slow realization that Mildred finally has at Valenti's that Frank is ultimately only interested in the money. Without the romance that inspires the scheme, Frank is just another crook to us. And there's questions with the episode. I've already said it several times, but how does Frank survive when they are going to be evicted right away? Suddenly, the immediacy of money is forgotten. And wouldn't someone look for Mildred? She was left at the bus, supposedly. Wouldn't someone check to see if she got on the bus? Couldn't she be traced? It's not like she goes very far away, and it's not like she changes her appearance all that much. And she uses a name that has her same initials. In a 1976 masterclass that you can find online, Hitchcock says, There's no drama in money, but there's often a lot of drama around money, the pursuit of money, the obsession with money. At the end, before he kills her, Frank says, You're not Mildred. But the truth is she is always Mildred because Mildred is a romantic. She has a new life. She has a new love. She doesn't want to be a crook. She doesn't want to be a bigamist. The problem is he's not Frank. Or perhaps he's really Frank for the first time. As I said before, the gimmick is that he hasn't killed her, so that the twist here is that he does kill her, which turns it all on its head rather nicely. And then it turns on its head again when Kettle finds Mildred's body, when he is not even looking for it, when he didn't find it in the very same spot years ago, assuming, of course, he does find the body, and we can believe Frank's face, which is more than serviceable acting by Sidney Blackmer. By way of tidying up our story... I feel obliged to tell you that Mrs. Partridge eventually received what is termed a decent burial. While this did not make her feel any better, knowing it may allow you to rest more easily. Well, that's our story for this evening. All of our show, including the following commercial, is on film. However, the corpse on tonight's program originated live in New York City. I'll be back in a minute. No, I don't know what that last comment means about the corpse originating live in New York City, but I suspect it's a dig at the commercials, which perhaps were originating live from New York City. Okay, I posed two questions at the beginning of this podcast, one of which was, what is Sidney Blackmer's best-known role? And here's the answer. What have you done to it? done to its eyes he has his father's eyes what are you talking about guys eyes are normal what have you done to him you maniac satan is his father not guy he came up from hell and begat a son of mortal woman hail satan hail satan satan is his father and his name is Adrian. He shall overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples. He shall redeem the despised and wreak vengeance in the name of the burned and the tortured. Hail Adrian! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! That's right. He's the head Satanist Roman Kastavets in Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Now, the second question was about a famous voice role of Virginia Gregg's, and here's the answer to that. Well, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. 
They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. As I understand it, there were several people who served as the voice of Mrs. Bates in Hitchcock's Psycho, one of whom was Virginia Gregg, and that was Virginia Gregg in that famous scene as Mrs. Bates. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please write to A at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. The Ann Arbor District Library owns Season 1 of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, My Favorite Wife, Move Over Darling, Rosemary's Baby, The Birds, Psycho, and Five Seasons of Arrow. All of the radio shows mentioned and the 35 minutes of Something's Got to Give can be found online. Next time, Episode 5, Into Thin Air, starring Pat Hitchcock. And now, if you don't mind, I shall stage a disappearance of my own. But don't be alarmed. I shall not stay out of sight for seven years, just seven days. When I reappear, it will be to tell you another of our little fairy stories for grown-up children. (laughs) 